Okay, good morning everyone and welcome back. Um, just to kind of give you a heads up, um, so I'm kind of going to do the same thing, which means basically we have three hours to do three separate sessions. So this morning we're going to finish up step one with more about alcoholism. We're going to take a five, you know, five ten minute break. We're going to do step two, which is we agnostics. Take a ten minute break or so, and then we're going to finish up this morning with step three, which is the first part of the chapter, how it works. Um, and I wanted to start off this morning, I had some conversations, I wish we had more time to look at that food inventory, but just because I had some conversations, I just wanted to kind of give you some general um, information about those conversations and, <clears throat> and I want to encourage you to talk to recovered people. Why do I want you to talk to recovered people? When you walk through these steps, you get neutrality around the food. It's when I have neutrality around my food that I can help you with your food. Once again, my opinion, we have a lot of sex in OA, and all those sex are usually divided on how their food plan works, right? My, my opinion, again, is if we're not having spiritual awakenings as a result of the steps, we get frightened when people eat differently than us. So what we do is we have to hang around people who eat just like us, and when we're trying to help people, we're so still invested in our own experience with food that we put it on somebody else. So that's why I think it's important to talk to people who are recovered who have neutrality on their food so they can objectively look at your food. Um, so some of the stuff with, with that exercise we did yesterday <coughs> that helped me. So for example, one of the foods that confused me was french fries. It seems like sometimes I had a problem with it, sometimes I didn't. And from looking at these foods with someone who was recovered, what I started to remember was people would joke with me and say, Kim, um, why don't you have some french fries with your ketchup? Because you couldn't see my french fries because all that I was, it was just covered in ketchup. Well, one of my binge ingredients is sugar. What is ketchup? Ketchup is basically red food dye and sugar. So what I was doing was using a potato as a vehicle to get my binge food into me with sugar. So once I separated those two, what I realized was I wasn't allergic to french fries. I'm not allergic to potatoes. I rarely have potatoes because without the ketchup, who wants a potato, <laughs> right? <laughs> I find that true for people who have high fat. One of their binge foods often is, is a baked potato. But if you ask them, how do you make the baked potato? It's got cheese, it's got sour cream, and it's got bacon on them. And if you ask them, well, what if you took off those ingredients to save the potato? And they actually often will make a face like, ew. <laughs> because once again, they're using a potato as a vehicle to get that, their, their high fat foods into them. Um, <coughs> so just to give you a comment, once again, chicken's another one. Often, if you're high fat, it's, it's the fried chicken. It's the chicken with the skin on it. And if you have a baked chicken with no skin on it, a lot of times people aren't interested. So if we can find out what those ingredients are, we can see how are we preparing our food, and that often is, that often is helpful. Just a couple examples that I gave with some people I talked to. Um, I personally love, love, love showers. I am I'm single, and I have three shampoos, three conditioners, and three body washes in my shower at all times, because I love the smells, I love it. But I do not think of my shower 10 minutes after I have it as thoroughly as I enjoy it. It's the same thing with my food. I thoroughly enjoy my food. However, 10 minutes later, I'm not thinking about it. So if you have foods that you are having, that you have them, and 10 minutes later, you're like, when am I gonna, when am I gonna have that again? If you're anxious because you're running out of it. 
if you're grieving it because there, because something went um, went you know uh, bad in the refrigerator, those are the foods you have to start to look at because <coughs> food is becoming entertainment. Um, I gave another example. Once again, I'm not an alcoholic, um, but if I had a couple glasses of wine today, I'm not worried about getting drunk and wanting to get drunk again. What happens with me, because most alcohols contain sugar, that's how they're made, they're fermented in sugar, um, that not maybe not tonight, maybe not tomorrow, but definitely by the next day, I'm gonna start to notice the Dunkin' Donuts rest, you know, drive-throughs where I don't notice them normally. Because the allergy of sugar was introduced into my body, even though I'm not really a big wine person, my body doesn't differentiate it. It knows that sugar was introduced, and my body is going to start saying, get more sugar, get more sugar, get more sugar. So that's, that was another good example. <coughs> another example I had with a sponsee, my number one um, personally ingredient is flour. So I have to work on, you know, when I didn't have a spiritual awakening, I assumed the whole world was allergic to flour. I had a sponsee that said, Kim, I'm confused because it seems like sometimes when I have pasta, I'm okay and sometimes I'm not and everyone's telling me I shouldn't have flour. I said, well, how do you prepare your pasta? And she says, well, when I have a marinara sauce, it's fine. I, you know, I weigh and measure it. I don't feel like I want any more. But when I have an Alfredo sauce, I can't stop. And I said, well, you know, maybe it's high fat food then because the Alfredo sauce is very high in fat and you're just using that on top of your pasta. So this is a girl, she's not allergic to flour. But she had to separate that out so that she knew that she couldn't have bread with a lot of butter on it or something along those lines. Um, so does that kind of clarify a little bit more the food inventory? Uh, I yeah. just wanted to add that um, sometimes um, french fries are coated in flour. Um, my, my granddaughter's allergic to flowers and so she can have fries but she always has to ask if it's coated in flour first. Well, that's why I, I find it very, very important to get down to ingredients. Because then all you have to do is flip something over. Um, for example, with french fries, uh, most frozen french fries are actually coated in dextrose and sugar. Because it stops the, the, the potato from browning. So when I'm in a restaurant, if, there are, if, they, if they have french fries, I'll say, did you make the fries here? And as long as they made the fries there, I'm fine. An another example is any prepared salads. Like when you go to a Wendy's or a McDonald's, if they have the prepared salads, they're often coated in dextrose as well because it stops the, the lettuce leaves from browning. So I will go to Chipotle and you know Salad Works and all those things where the salads are prepared in front of you because they're not, you know, they're not in a in a refrigerated case. Um, so that's why I said, you know, it, it's just, and we are so lucky today, you know, back in the 90s when I was getting abstinent, I mean, like, they didn't have the internet <laughs> the way they do now. You can go on most restaurants and they'll give you the ingredients in stores. Um, I, you know, a lot of these high-end grocery stores, too, that have these prepared foods, they, you just ask them, you can turn that label over and they'll tell you. I do not like to cook, so I am all for buying prepared foods. I hate cooking, but I'm very careful about what, how do they prepare that food and does it have any of my binge, because they're not, I, heard, I forget who I was talking to, but I said to them, I said, I said, the waitress is not trying to poison you. Like, I really thought the waiters and waitresses were trying to screw me over, you know. So one of the tips that I was given was not to ask if there's sugar in it or whatever your ingredient is, but to say, can you tell me how that sauce is prepared? Like even when we went out to eat last night, I asked if there was sugar in it, and they said, "Oh no, this is this is made with honey, 
Well, honey is, honey is a sugar to me. It's not S-U-G-A-R, but, but to me it is a sugar. So I find it helpful to ask what's in the sauce versus drilling someone saying, I can't have X, Y, and Z. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're going to get into the chapter <coughs> more about alcoholism, which starts on page 30. And I have two old ideas, two prejudices that I wanted to look at, and then we'll look at the end of the chapter. And then at the end of this chapter, we're going to review the handout. So hopefully everyone has a handout at their, at their desk. If not, we can make sure you get one by the end of the chapter. Um, so one of them was I eat because of my emotions and my life circumstances. And the second one was once I get stable emotionally, physically, and spiritually, I can go back and eat all these foods in moderation. So let's look at that compared to what the book is actually going to teach us. So if we start on page 30, it says, and, and actually if, if I had you know, Supreme Ruler of the Universe <coughs> and I could change the name of any chapter in the big book, I would change the chapter of this, the name of this chapter to why I have to come to Overeaters Anonymous. Because as, as challenging as the allergy is, if my problem was just an allergy, then honestly every rehab across the country would kick out 100% recovery. Because they remove from you know, the ability for you to indulge in your drugs, your alcohol, your food, whatever your substance is, and after 28 days you're not having an allergic reaction, and then they can tell you, look, this is what your allergy is, don't do it, and we could all be, go on with our lives. The problem is that when I'm sober, I go back to the food. So this is, there's going to be four stories and more about alcoholism, and they're not stories about people that are drunk and can't get sober. They're four sto stories about people who are sober and make the insane decision to drink again. And that's why I have to come to Overeaters Anonymous. So it says, uh, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics, that 10%. No person likes to think himself bodily and mentally different from his fellows. So once again, they're drilling home twofold illness, allergy of the body and mental twist. And what we're going to see here, I always thought I had a disease of denial. I don't know, had anyone feel like they have a disease of denial? That's what I always felt. Too. And really, denial means I know the truth and I'm just choosing not to do it, choosing to ignore it. What we're going to see in this big book is they're talking about illusions, delusions and insanity. I am insane in this area of my life. And I'm not insane in, in the clinical sense, but in this area of my life, I am insane. So it says here, um, the idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing and may, many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. <coughs> So I didn't realize that until one of the stories in the back of the book, a girl um, was talking about going to a hockey game. And she said she never realized it before, but when she was drinking, when she was, um, when she was controlling it, she wasn't enjoying it. And when she was enjoying it, she wasn't controlling it. So the illusion was wanting to do both. And I, I really related into that. I wanted to be able to do both. And that next paragraph, it says, we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. Because I love that word delusion. 
Personally, I think of schizophrenics. Schizophrenics hear voices, right? There's nothing you can tell them to say the voices aren't real because they're delusional. I am delusional in, my, in, in this area of my life. To, to you know, delusional can be like other people. And I have to tell you, my delusion was a delusion. <coughs> I always use my friend Melissa, who's a normal eater. And if we get together and we're all meeting for dinner, she'll get there and she'll talk about how hungry she is because she forgot to eat lunch. I've never forgotten to eat lunch. You know, she will order appetizers and she shares. I honestly didn't think appetizers were for sharing. I thought appetizers was the appetizer for you, right? And when she gets her entree, sometimes she'll push stuff to the side and I'm like, what are you doing? And she'll say, well, I thought I was in the mood for it, but now I'm really not. And then she always, always has to have chocolate. She's the one who has the Hershey Kisses at night. Always, always has to have it. And she often will take a bite or two and then she'll say what we talked about. It's too rich, it's too sweet, I'm too full. That is a normal eater. I don't want to be a normal eater. What I want is to eat the way I want to eat and I want to look like my friend Melissa. I don't want the consequences. I want to indulge in my disease to the utmost and not have the consequences of my disease. So I, that's the, the biggest delusion that had to be smashed for me. I am never going to be a normal eater, nor do I want to be. I'm fascinated by them, absolutely fascinated by normal eaters, always fascinated when I see people leave stuff on their plates. I'll tell you a funny story. <coughs> After I was neutral, I had my family over um, for Christmas and I had made this like sugar-free, um, well it was a sugar-free ice cream kind of dessert because my brother's diabetic so he has to have sugar-free stuff. And at Easter they were coming over and I realized I still had the ice cream in my freezer because I'm neutral, I, didn't, I forgot about it. And I had went to the girls at work and I said, does ice cream go bad? And they're like, ha ha, I'm said, no, I'm serious. Does ice cream go bad? Do I need to throw this out and get new ones? And they're looking at me. So well, if there's crystals on the top, you just take the top layer off and then the bottom's fine. I'm like, okay. Because see, I had never had leftover ice cream. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant. So the delusion, that I, I don't want to be someone that has leftover ice cream in, in the freezer. I want to be able to have all that ice cream and not have to worry about the consequences of it. So that next paragraph, <coughs> now Bill is a, a very pro prolific writer and you'll see, which sometimes is confusing, a lot of different words used for the same thing. Like he'll talk about steps, principles, and because he doesn't want to use the same word twice. Here in this one paragraph, he's using the word control four separate times. So he's really trying to put a point there. So it says, um, all of us felt at times we were regaining control but such intervals usually brief, which is the diet, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type, that 10%, are in the grip of a progressive illness over any considerable period of time. We get worse, never better. So what I do is I hang on to that one time in, in a way where I had that pink cloud and I was absent for two weeks and I try to think I can do, I can get back there somehow. So one of the concepts that I, I, I don't know if it's national, but in Region 7 it's very common to have <coughs> what are called relapse and recovery meetings. And I would talk about them, but what I realize now is if the program is the 12 steps, right? Because in page 58 it says, here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. So if I am simply going on a diet and going off a diet, 
I'm going on a diet and going off it. That's not relapse and recovery. That's the progression of my illness. And what I saw in the rooms of OA was that my, my disease was progressing more and more. So I'll give you an example. I, you know, I came into OA, it took me a couple years um, of trying to help you, you know, hoping you guys would help me control and enjoy my eating. There was a meeting at a, at a mall on Tuesdays and Thursday nights in my area and I would have, that would be my pizza nights. So I would go and have two slices of pizza before the meeting thinking that the power of the meeting would make me not go back and eat the rest of the pizza. Sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But when I got into a group that really talked about food sobriety, I got six years back-to-back -back abstinence. And I was intergroup chair and I was on the region board and they wanted me to run to World Service Trustee. Now I had dabbled in the steps but I hadn't done the steps. I do not know how to say no. So in this keen alcoholic mind, I thought, well if I pick up, I'm not qualified. And then I don't have to say no. So I purposely picked up, figured I would do it for a day, tell them I can't you know, um, do this position, and then I would just quote unquote get back on track. What I didn't realize was my disease continues to progress even though I wasn't eating. And after that point, I couldn't get more than eight or nine months, and eventually not more than eight or nine weeks, and then eventually not more than eight or nine days, and then I couldn't even get eight or nine hours. So my disease is going to progress. <coughs> now that last paragraph that goes into the top of page 31 gives this analogy of people who've lost their legs or are under no delusion that their legs are going to grow back which, um, you know, I think most of us don't know someone who's lost a limb, unfortunately, with the wars. Some, a lot of us more do than we did before. Um, but I, I have to use a more common thing, and I'm seeing a lot of people who, here who wear glasses. So when you woke up this morning, did you have a discussion with yourself today about whether you should wear your glasses or not? <laughs> when you were packing for the retreat, did you say, is this a re retreat, I want to pack my glasses or not pack my glasses? Have you ever thought, it's my birthday, I don't think I'm going to wear my glasses today. <laughs> you have fully conceded that you need glasses, and I'm sure you're grateful for the prescription that allows you to see properly. I have fully conceded to my innermost self that I am a compulsive overeater, and I'm grateful I have a prescription for that, which is the 12 steps. That's the, the depth that we have to concede this. And I remember... Um, being in a meeting, the first time I read this after the Boston Marathon bombing and thinking of all those people that lost their limbs. And in the aftermath of that, um, on a, one of those late night TV shows, <coughs> there was a woman there that was the head of a um, charity. And she was someone who was a double, uh, double below the knee amputee, which apparently is a huge difference if it's below the knee or above the knee, below the knee amputee from cancer. And she started a charity to help people who've lost their limbs. And when she described how this charity worked, I thought, holy crap, this is a 12-step program. Because she said there were four main qualities. One, that it was everybody involved in this charity were people who had the same problem. And it gave them um, a clarity with the people that they were helping. Said that one of the biggest problems they had was people who were in denial and said, I, my life's not going to change because I lost my legs. And especially, she said, with this marathon thing, because a lot of these people were big athletes. They, if they were going to be in denial that their life wasn't going to change because they lost their legs. Um, she also talked about the, the, the people who benefited the most were the people who went through the program and then came back and helped others. 
because it was in helping the other people that they really healed. And I thought, shit, that, 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 is, that, is, that is Overeaters Anonymous. And the last thing I heard, which made me cry, because it's been my experience, is that she said she was a couch potato. And when she lost her limbs and she started to have to do physical therapy, that she is now a triathlete WMPT. That she was driven into a life that she never would have had if she didn't have this amputation. I had been driven into a life I never could have dreamed. I freaking hate to fly. I think I flew three times before I started doing these big book weekends. And now I'm going across the country you know, to Seattle to do a big book. That never would have been possible if I, if, I, if I didn't have this disease and wasn't called to help others. So I just love that example because it, the, the, we have to understand that like this example of OA and 12-step programs is universal. Those who help others often are much more um, you know, grounded in, in, in whatever's going on in their lives. And if those people who are in denial often have the hardest time. Um, so then we, we talk here <coughs> about what this man of 30 is the first example, which is on page 32 and 33. So the man of 30 is a guy who sees he's having a problem with his drinking. He really, really wants to be successful in business. And he decides, well, until I retire, I'm not going to drink. So he is, has a lot of self-will, and he's able to do a lot of willpower. And then when he retires, um, on that second full paragraph, it talks about the fact that he, um, you know, he, he drinks and he takes off his carpet slippers. I love the language of the 30s. And he is dead within four years because he can't stop drinking. So it says in that um, second full paragraph, about two-thirds down, <coughs> he fell victim to the belief, which practically every alcoholic has, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline him to qualify him to drink like other men. I know for myself that um, I think in a way a lot of it is we've met goal weight. Well, I've been at goal weight for so long that I, I should now be able to have that exception. So that's the, the, you know, the victim, that the, 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 the allergic reaction does not go away. I think I talked yesterday about penicillin with me. I'm under no delusion because I'm allergic to penicillin as an infant. I think that I outgrew that, that allergy. And I do believe the allergic reaction would be a lot worse because my body's older. Same exact idea here. It's only going to get worse, never better. So if we go to the top of page 33, that first full paragraph, it says, in this case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could therefore drink normally. But here is a man at 55 years found he was just as he left off at 30. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in a short time as bad as ever. If, if we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. So do I believe that? That's part of that fully conceding. Do I believe it? I mean, if we're planning to stop drinking, I wasn't planning on stop drinking many years in OA. I was planning on losing some weight and finding a cute guy, and that would be, inspire me to, you know, to, to stay thin the rest of my life. That's what I thought. So there can't be any lurking notions. And unfortunately, there, you, know, you hear people talking about that in the rooms. Well, yeah, I used to have to do this, but I, you know, now I'm so spiritually fit, I can go back to those foods. Now, I have to tell you, for me, this is just my experience again, I, 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 the, this is a structured group that I belong to, we had to abstain from four ingredients. 
to be abstinent. Well, two of them I'm not allergic to, so I gave them up pretty easily. The other two I thought I was going to die. And what I have found for myself, once again, with these groups, is there were additional foods I was allergic to that I was allowed to eat in this program, which I was, and I was allergic to them, so it, it wasn't helpful. Um, but for me to now say, well, I can now have, well, again, one of, one of them was caffeine. I can now have caffeine, so therefore, I, you know, it, the lurking notion is I can go back. I was never allergic to caffeine to begin with. It was just something someone told me to do. It wasn't anything that I outgrew. So I have to recognize, you know, one of the things I do with my sponsees is at that last page on the doctor's opinion, after we go through their food inventory and we identify those foods, those ingredients, and those behaviors, they write down at the end of the doctor's opinion what they are. Because when they say, I wasn't sure if I was abstinent today, well, let's look at the page. Abstinent, you're either abstinent or you're not. Did you engage in any of those foods, any of those ingredients and those behaviors? If you did, you're not abstinent. And as you go through, which I talked to some people yesterday, is I was so heavily dependent on certain foods and ingredients, I didn't realize there were other foods I was allergic to, but since I understood the effect in me, a year later I was like, holy crap, this, I'm getting an effect from this too, and I had to put the, down those foods. So. And I did it gratefully because I was recovered and I wanted to keep that connection going. So foods, ingredients, and behaviors might be added to that list, but they don't fall off that list. That's what I have to understand. Does that make sense? Yes. Does that piss anybody off? Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <coughs> so let's go to page 34. And we're going we're gonna to slam that idea home. So the second paragraph. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. So are you of that class who is unable to eat moderately? We are assuming, of course, the desires, person desires to stop, <coughs> which is a big if. Whether such a person can quit on a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. So once again, we talked about this last night, but people who can come in and just do the tools and be happy, that is a non-spiritual basis. If someone can just commit their food to their sponsor and that accountability is enough, that is a non-spiritual basis. Welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. I just hope you don't sponsor me, because that message will kill me. But that's, I have to recognize, the non-spiritual basis, if I can control and enjoy my eating, I'm not the 10% that the big book is talking about. There was a tremendous, many of us felt we had plenty of character, there was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. This utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or wish. So this is one of the ways that I kept the delusion alive. I used to make red lines. Well, when I'm 16, I'm going to do something about this. And then I would turn 16 and go, ah, oh, nah, I think 18's good. And then I would get 18, ah, oh, you know, maybe when I turn 21, when I have to go out in the bars, I'll do it then. Or I'd put a size on it. Well, when I get to a size 16, or a size 18, size 20. So I still maintain that delusion I could do something about it. But for me personally, when I was 23, and I decided this was it, I am doing something about this, I was baffled. I was shocked that I couldn't stop. Because I was beyond choice at this point. I gave myself the delusion I had a choice, but the reality was I did not have a choice. Does that make sense? So now we're going to go on to talk about um, 
are friends Jim and Fred. And the reason I like to compare these guys is because it breaks that delusion that if I can make my life look a certain way, then I'm not going to want to eat. If Brad Pitt comes and, you know, puts on one knee and gives me a ring, I'm never going to want to eat again. So Jim is the guy that loses absolutely everything and he eats. That totally makes sense to me. Fred is the guy that has the best day in the world and he eats and that baffled me. Because I used to think I was an emotional eater. So if I balanced my emotions and I would chase them all over the place to feel good, then I'm not going to want to eat. <coughs> so I just want to take a little survey here. How many of you eaten when you're sad? How many have eaten when you're happy? How many have eaten with a bad breakup? How many have eaten when the relationship's going well? How many have eaten when you got fired? How many of you have eaten when, the, when you got a promotion? There's some smart people in the back that aren't even putting their hands down. <laughs> so if, you, if that's your reality, then you're screwed. Because you cannot arrange your life in any specific way that you're not going to eat. You know, we often talk about well, avoid your triggers. Avoid people, places, and things. That's a miserable way to live, first of all. But I have to tell you, what I discovered for myself is I only have one trigger. And that's being awake. Yeah. <laughs> and if I'm awake, I'm probably going to eat. So I am screwed. So let's look at Jim. Jim is, is a guy, once again, he loses everything. He has an automobile. And I love this because I love it because I, I work for an auto, an auto auction. So that I, I identify him with Jim. And Fred's an accountant. And I'm an accountant. So I identify him with Fred that way, too. Um, but it talks about he's an intelligent man. It's on page 35. He's an intelligent man, so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. That, to me, is restlessness, irritability, discontentment that we learned in the doctor's opinion. So they... Upon leaving the asylum, or as I say, upon leaving the rehab, as we do now, um, we told him what we knew of alcoholism, which was step one. The answer we found, which is step two. And he made a beginning, which is step three. And it says a couple sentences down, all went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. So the way that I think about that is all went well for a time is talking about the allergy. Because there is an absolute freedom from not eating your binge foods. For me personally, I start to sleep a little bit better. My stomach doesn't hurt as much. Um, I said when I'm eating, the world is like a Peanuts episode where all the adults are like wah, 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 wah. So I'm starting to understand people. I'm not on that seven second delay. But I can't live off of that for any period of time. I, I still remember <coughs> I spoke at a meeting and this meeting gave out coins and this young girl got up and she got a 30-day coin and her sponsor got up and was just just glowing about what a good little sponsee she is that she calls her every day with her food that she makes her phone call she attends her meet all about the tools and this young girl got up <coughs> and she said I'm almost embarrassed to take this I've been in OA for 10 years I have so many of these 30-day coins but I've never had a 60-day coin why is that? Because she's, she gets the allergy out of her system. All went well for a time. But she failed to enlarge her spiritual life is she's never addressed the mental twist. And if you don't address the mental twist, you're going to eat again. So we all love on top of 36, <coughs> that second paragraph in the squiggly writing of Joe and Charlie. Thus suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. And everyone thinks that's so funny. 
That to me is white knuckled abstinence. If I spend my life on guard for the suddenly, that's a miserable way to live. So what I like to look at is the paragraph before. Because that's where his thinking sets himself up for the suddenly. And if I can get it access to a power <coughs> in my thinking, then I never have to get to the suddenly. I mean, I, when I was, prior to my big book experience, if anything bad happened in my life and I talked to no other, how's your food? How's your food? When I something bad happens in my life now, I talk to someone, Where's your, where you are in your step work? Have you done a 10 and 11 on it? Because that's where the recovery is. I, I'm not sitting there waiting for something to happen that's going to make me eat. So let's look at what it says. It says, yet he got drunk again. We asked him how it happened. <coughs> this is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. So this man lost his family business, and he's saying he's irritated. I would be enraged. Now I know about you guys, but I can, my whole world can be falling apart, and someone says, Kim, how you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. Downplaying the emotions. So I can see that, that being built up in him. He had a few words with the boss. Now I don't know Jim, but what I picture him saying is, F you, I used to own this business. You can't tell me what to do. And I have to tell you how many times I've said, I've had a few words with my mother, and I've cursed her out, downplaying the emotions. Then I decided to go into the country <coughs> and see one of my prospects for a car on the way I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. No intention of drinking, I just thought I'd get a sandwich. So I don't, <coughs> I don't know how different it was in the 1930s. And like I said, I work for an auto auction. And at least in New Jersey, I have never been at a restaurant, a diner, a coffee shop, and a used car salesman came up and tried to sell me something. Yeah. <laughs> What's he going to show me? There's no inventory. Maybe today with an iPad he could show me some stuff. So what I think of with this is being at an OA meeting and people are crying, they can't get out of the food as they're sitting there with their Dunkin' Donuts mug of coffee. If you can't get out of the food, what the hell are you doing in a Dunkin' Donuts? Well, they have really good coffee. Awesome, you can buy that at your local supermarket and make it at home. So this is the rationale he's using. I'm going to go out and sell stuff at, these, at the, you know, a place that just happens to have a bar. <coughs> On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place. I just thought I'd get a sandwich. I also had the notion I might find a customer, which I was familiar. I'd been going to it for years. I'd eaten there many times during the months I was sober. Sat down at the table, ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. So I often hear people say, well, look, he's a compulsive overeater, too. He ordered that second sandwich. <laughs> and I've actually heard a Joe and Charlie recording where he said, this, this is not a problem unless you're an overeater's anonymous. <laughs> but I personally don't see it that way. I think of my own experience. I'll go to Panera Bread, and I like tea. And I order a cup of tea. And then I'll order, bless you, order a second cup of tea. And then I'll order a third cup of tea. Until finally, I order the bagel. I don't like tea that much. I'm looking for an excuse to hang out in the Panera Bread until finally I have the excuse to have what I really want and why I came in there, the bagel. Who knows? It does not say that Jim ate the sandwich. He was probably just looking for an excuse to hang around there until he had the excuse to have it. 
So once again, if I can get God or a power greater than myself involved in this first paragraph, that I don't have to be on guard for the second paragraph. You know, I remember once again when I was very tool-based only and been abstinent for a while, you know, um, you know, I got everything I wanted. I was skinny, I bought blonde hair, I hardly, this is not my natural color, um, and I bought blue eyes. I'm like, okay, everything's good. And I remember being in line to, um, at the grocery store, and they always have those <coughs> impulse items, which are usually candy, and there was white chocolate pieces peanut butter cups, and I thought, how brilliant! White chocolate peanut butter cups? How could I die without not knowing what white chocolate peanut butter cups <laughs> taste like? And suddenly the thought crossed my mind, I'll just have one to see what it tastes like. Off one more trip to the asylum for Kim. And I don't have a protection, I'm without defense against that first drink of my own power and of human aid. Because what I, what I would have been told in, a, in many of my meetings that I went to was, problem was you didn't call your sponsor. And maybe my sponsor would have talked me out of it that time. But once again, what if my sponsor is not available? So my, my absence is dependent on whether someone picks up their phone? That's not a way to live. So if we go to now to the page 37, second full paragraph, actually the first one, whatever the precise definition of the word <coughs> may be, we call this plain insanity. So once again, we've gone from illusion, delusion, to insanity. That second paragraph, you may think this is an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched for this kind of thinking. Once again, we've gone off the body, right? This type of thinking has been characteristic of every one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim <coughs> upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomena that parallels with our sound reasoning there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking that first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Next day would ask ourselves, in all earnest and sincerity, how could it have happened? I mean, I know that we're liars as addicts, but I gotta tell you, a lot of times I wasn't lying. Put me to a, a, a lie detector test. This time was gonna be different. I so remember the time, I'm, I'm a really cheap person, <coughs> and I decided to buy brand name Tupperware. And I thought, that's going to keep me abstinent. Because if I'm going to spend the extra money for the brand name, that'll work. So I love this curious mental phenomenon that powers the sound reasoning. And I think of, um, I have a little Jack Russell mix at home. And we can be hanging out in the backyard, happy, joyous, and free. And a squirrel comes anywhere near my, my backyard. She's a freaking lunatic. She takes her 20-something pounds and she throws it against the fence in the tree because she was bred. She was bred to get squirrels. So that's what I think of is when I am without defense against that first drink, I can be sane, sane, sane donut, and I am off and running. <laughs> There's nothing, I don't have a, a protection against that. Now, one of my, my AA mentors, <coughs> I have written in the front of my book, he said in a meeting, he said, the big book meets you where you are and elevates you from there. Which is why every time I go through this book, it's different. So as a recovered woman, I remember reading this and thinking, this is, you know, I, once again, I've I been abstinent for a while. I'm neutral around food. I'm, that is not happening to me. But I can be happy, joyous, free anger. Happy, joyous, free resentment. Happy, joyous, free fear. I don't know when that's going to come up. 
which is why I have to be tethered in through 10 and 11 to this power because otherwise that anger, resentment, that fear is going to eventually lead me back to eating. Does that make sense? So let's go to page 40 now. <coughs> and we're going to meet Fred. So the second paragraph, Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. He has not lost everything. His kids are successful. His business is thriving. Just happens to show up in a hospital every once in a while for his drinking. <laughs> and it says, to all appearances, he's a stable, well-balanced individual, but he has a case of the jitters and he needs to rest his nerves. So what I see again is restless, irritable, discontent. Once again, sobriety is our main problem. And it says here too that, um, that he did not believe himself an alcoholic. So he was not even at step one. So <coughs> on top of page 40, about four lines down, he was positive that this humiliating experience plus the knowledge he had, he had acquired would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. I used to wish for humiliating experiences thinking that would shame me into not eating. I remember in college, I worked at a 7-Eleven, and um, someone asked for cigarettes, and I bent down, and my, plant, my pants split open. And I was the only one in the, in the store, and there was a long line, and I had to call my father to bring me more, you know, additional pair of pants, and I had to sit there and continue to take the line of people while my pants were split open. And I remember thinking, I'm never gonna binge again. I was binging within days. That humiliating experience did not stop me. <clears throat> so let's go to that third paragraph. So it says, let me tell you about it. I was much impressed with what you fellows had said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to eat again. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which proceeds, proceeds, precedes the first drink, but I was confident it could not happen to me after all I had learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows and I had been usually successful in licking our other personal problems and that I would therefore be successful where you men had failed. I felt I had every right to be self-confident that it would be a only a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. So <coughs> I came into OA when I was 27. My mom came into OA when I was only 10 years old. I'm a lot smarter than my mother. So I kind of figured I would go there, 12 steps, 12 weeks, I was out of here. The arrogance. Yeah, you old ladies who are probably younger than I am now, you old ladies, you know, you might need to do this. That's the same excuse I hear, which we talked about last night. Yeah, you were, you hundred pounder groups, yeah, you might have to do that, but, you know, I, I, I was only 90 pounds overweight, so I don't need to do what you do. <laughs> you know, I remember being at a workshop and there was a bulimia workshop and someone asked me if I was going and I said, oh, well, no, I only throw up three times a day. I'm not a real bulimic. <laughs> You know, so we downplay, yeah, you guys might need to do that, but I don't need to do it. And once again, for me personally, willpower and keeping on guard was the tools. I'm going to be on guard. I'm going to keep myself so busy and distracted that I'm not going to want to eat. Service with slimming was a big thing. I would do service all the time because I, I, I wouldn't eat in public. So if I keep myself in public enough, then I'm not going to binge. So <coughs> he goes about with this frame of mind has the information, thinks he's above it, and then it talks about a 41 that he goes to Washington and he ha his, it goes extremely well and it says it was the 
end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. And that second paragraph was some of that you write again. The thought came to me, it struck me, that suddenly took him down just as easily on his best day as it took down Jim on a bad day. So we often talk about promises in this program. So we're going to read about a promise. So the bottom of 41, that last paragraph that goes into 42. <coughs> as soon as I regain my ability to think. Let me put out, point out something with that too. Why was he able to, point, to get his um, ability to think back? Because he stopped drinking. So once again, this to me is reiterating the fact we have to have the food down in order to be open to this, this spiritual awakening. I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, but I made no fight whatsoever against the first strength. I did not think of the consequences at all. So his game plan of being on guard, avoiding people, places, and things, avoiding my triggers, you know, hanging out with the winners, whatever thing we want we to say, is that was not enough for him when the suddenly thought came there. I commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I always think of my one friend, Mary, um, <coughs> from my home group, who um, we, we, we found out we, we actually went to the same high school, but she's five years older than I am, so we both went to Catholic high school, but I didn't know her. And she told me about how she'd been abstinent for a while, and her sisters went up to New York and were at a convent, and they bought some bread, and one of her allergens is, is flour. Um, but when she looked at the ingredients for the bread, it said love and kindness. <laughs> so she thought, oh, bread made by nuns with love and kindness, it should be fine. <laughs> one more trip to the asylum for Mary. I know I have done that many, many times. I now remember what my fr alcoholic friends had told me. So here's what they had prophesied. So a prophecy is a promise. <coughs> they prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come. I would drink again. They had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that did happen and more. For what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that my willpower and self-knowledge did not help in those strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said that they had a problem that had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. So it's letting us know whatever's going on, if we have that alcoholic mind, it will convince us to eat again. So continuing with that second paragraph, <coughs> two of the members of AA came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like too much. And they asked me, so here's the two conditions. So as we're finishing up step one, these are great questions to reflect on if you're still in the food or you're at, in your step one. If I thought myself an alcoholic, do you believe you have the allergy of the body and the mental twists, that you are no different than anyone else in Overeaters Anonymous that, that has the same disease? And if I were really licked this time, Meaning, are you done? We often talk about one day at a time keeping down the food. Yeah, we do that. But the big book doesn't ask us one day at a time to not drink. It says, are you done? Are you out of ideas? And those are the two conditions that get us to step one. For many years, I thought step one is don't eat no matter what, no matter what, don't eat. What the big book has just taught us in these chapters is step one is I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat unless I have a spiritual awakening. And it's that recognition 
of powerlessness that drives me into step two. I mentioned it briefly yesterday, but step one has two parts of it. I admit it, I'm powerless over food. I have this allergy, nothing's gonna change that. Dash, my life is unmanageable. It doesn't say I'm powerless over food and therefore my life is unmanageable. They're two separate concepts. My unmanageability has to do with my sobriety. And if I don't get that I'm powerless in my sobriety, then why do I need a power? Because I, I got it. Does that make sense? So let's read that last paragraph now on page 43. <coughs> Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. Except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. Where are we now? The last paragraph of the chapter on page 43. So that's what's going to propel us. My conclusion, we don't, we don't work step one in the rooms. We honestly, we work step one in the, in the parking lot of the local McDonald's. That's where we work step one. <laughs> when we come to that conclusion, that's when we're ready for step two. So we are at 9.51. So we'll take a break till 10 a.m. I did not have time to take questions, so we'll actually start out at 10 a.m. with any questions you have from anything that we talked about with step one. Oh, actually, I forgot one thing. That handout. This handout, is, well, my friend Maria made this, and it basically takes these four chapters that we discussed, which we didn't discuss Bill's story, but the four step one chapters, and it talks about the cycle, the physical allergies on, in, uh, on the um, right, and the mental obsession is on the left. So at the top of it, the first bite, to, to experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. We went over that in doctor's opinion. Then what happens? The phenomenon of craving develops. They took a bite and the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other issues. Once again from the doctor's opinion. What comes after that? The well-known stages of a spree. They were drinking, eating to overcome a craving beyond their control. Doctor's opinion again. Emerging remorseful and swearing off. I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop. Also from the doctor's opinion. Swearing off. A firm resolution not to binge again while sober, abstinent, feelings, restless, irritable, discontent. Doctor's opinion again. Then the great obsession starts. The idea, so now we're, we're past the allergy, right? We put the food down, not feeling the physical cravings. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. We, learned, we just learned that this morning. Then, no alcoholic ever, ever recovers control. <coughs> All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but intervals usually brief were inevitably followed by still less control, which leads to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And the last one is the insidious insanity. But there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallels with our sound reasoning. There inevitably ran some insane trivial excuse for taking that first bite. Our sound reasoning failed to keep us in check. The insane idea went out and more about alcoholism. And then we get right back to that first bite again. And this is like a hamster wheel. We're going to do it over and over and over and over unless we interrupt that cycle. I can't interrupt the allergy in the sense I can't eat those foods and be safe. 
but I can interrupt the mental twist which drives me to take that first bite. Okay, so we will come back again and I took up a little extra time so we have a six minute break and we'll start back at 10 a.m. Thank you guys. Thank you.